This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Senator Michael Bennett wants a different job. President, the Colorado Democrat, entered the crowded primary field this morning in an interview with CBS. Here's a snippet. Given the number of Democrats that are running for president, is that a sign of a healthy party or a party who doesn't know what it, what it really wants? I think it's both. I think, I, think the Democrat, I think right now the Democratic Party doesn't stand for very much uh, on, at the national level with respect to what the American people think. But this is the opportunity for us to show what we stand for, for us to have a competition of ideas. And I think it's phenomenal that we've got as diverse uh, a, an array of candidates as we have in all respects. Uh, and that we've got the number that we have. You know, we, it's, a process like this is long overdue in the Democratic Party. Let's get some analysis from Seth Maskett, director of the Center on American Politics at DU. Seth, thanks for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. You write for a number of publications, including the website 538. And a story on that site today points out an interesting number from a Monmouth University poll in March Nearly half, 48 percent of Democrats, have never heard of Michael Bennett, and only 20 percent were able to form any opinion about him. How does that translate into winning the Democratic nomination? Well, I mean, it is obviously a bit of a long shot, but we're also, you know, some 10 months away from the first voting in the Iowa caucus in the New Hampshire primary. There's a lot that can happen between now and then. And what polling looks like now is probably not reflective of of what it's going to look like a few months from now or no less at the beginning of 2020. The reactions to our story about Bennett's run on Facebook are less than generous. Just to quote a few, oh, for crying out loud, enough with the vanity runs. Uh, Senator Bennett, please focus on your health and your current position. And uh, need your expertise in the Senate far more than on the campaign trail for president. Who is asking for a Michael Bennett presidency? (laughs) I know that you've been regularly checking in with about 60 party activists in early primary states, including Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. Is he emerging in those discussions? So his name doesn't really come up very much. When I've asked people about him, not many people seem opposed to him. A number have met him. I mean, he's been doing some campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, no one seems bothered by him. Several people seem certainly impressed with his skills and, and intelligence. But there aren't many people, you know, demanding that he run for president by a long shot. Um, but on the it, other hand, yeah. I would say that activists remain pretty open. Um, most of them haven't really committed to any one candidate. Senator Bennett had an operation for prostate cancer and is apparently cancer-free. Uh, he told CBS that it helped crystallize his thinking about running for president. Um, first, he realized how much he wanted it. And second, it made him think apparently about Americans who are uninsured. And You know, the issue of health care has been a winning one for Democrats lately. I think it really helped them reclaim the House. Is that a strong message for Bennett to use to stand out with? He certainly does need to stand out in some way. Um, You know, given how crowded this field is with quite a few pretty conventionally qualified and pretty impressive candidates, he obviously needs some hook to identify himself and to kind of stand out in the crowd. Um, obviously, talking about his own very recent experiences uh, with the healthcare system just presents that opportunity. And uh, I think it makes perfect sense for him to glom onto that issue, and particularly since, yeah, as you point out, 
health care is a very strong issue for Democrats right now. And it's a very unpopular one for the Trump administration. So, you know, anyone who uh, wants to mount a serious campaign against Trump, I, I think that's a pretty strong issue to be jumping onto. Bennett's the second Coloradan behind John Hickenlooper now to run for president this year. Is that just coincidence or do you think it says something about the political climate here and the kind of field, uh, the political crop that Colorado is growing? Colorado has been kind of a state to watch for a while now in, in national politics, particularly because it's been a pretty competitive state for a while and it's been swinging slightly into the Democratic camp. And it's been a, a quickly growing state. So, you know, Democrats have kind of targeted is, is in many ways kind of the key to the Western states. And the fact that you have, you know, in Hickenlooper and Bennett, you have two candidates who uh, have managed to win what's considered a competitive state, and they won it in years that weren't necessarily that great for Democrats nationally. Um, they both won in 2010, which was a very rough year for the party in a swing state. You know, that kind of gives them some claim to say, you know, we know how to win uh, over voters who aren't necessarily already in the Democratic camp. We know how to have that conversation with swing voters that uh, other candidates from more traditionally liberal states might not. Do you think there's any, I don't know, potential for confusion between Bennett and Hickenlooper? I mean, they work together. Bennett was Hickenlooper's chief of staff during his time as mayor. I mean, for those who don't know them yet, uh, yes, there's certainly some potential for some confusion there. On the other hand, if you see either of them speak or you, you, you meet either of them uh, or watch them in a debate, they obviously have very different personal styles. They have different issues that they represent. They, you know, obviously, they have that Coloradan approach, that, that sort of low-key approach to politics, but um, they're very different people. Seth, thanks for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. We spoke about U.S. Senator Michael Bennett's entry into the Democratic presidential primary. Gay conversion therapy for minors will soon be outlawed in Colorado. A bill to ban the practice for anyone under 18 awaits Governor Jared Polis's signature. Polis, who is openly gay, is supportive of the bill. The state of Colorado follows Denver, which outlawed the practice for kids earlier this year. Among mental health professionals, this type of therapy is largely seen as junk science. Still, religious organizations say the ban would infringe on families' rights. It's just one dispute highlighted in the new book, We Love You, But You're Going to Hell, by my guest Kim O'Reilly of Denver. The subtitle is Christians and Homosexuality. Agree? Disagree? Take a look? O'Reilly consults with businesses, churches, and schools to address cultural differences. And Kim, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's, it's wonderful to be here. You are openly gay. Your father was a conservative evangelical minister. Yes. yes. How was it trying to square those two facts? Well, that's what I write about in my book, is that journey with my father and um, looking at the differences that we had over our interpretation of scriptures. And it was something that there was a love between he and I, a, a deep love, but he had very staunch beliefs about the, the seven scriptures that have been used against gays and lesbians. We, we um, went through, again, our journey, and that's what uh, the first chapter or two of my book talks about. Yeah, what was his initial reaction when 
you came out? <laughs> His initial reaction was that he wanted to debate the scriptures. And um, I, I had already gone over those scriptures for myself and uh, obviously disagree that they condemn. And he, uh, once we went over the scriptures, then he didn't end up speaking to me for about six months afterward. And then it took a while for us to, to start to bridge to bridge that, that gap and the misunderstanding that we had. What do you think was happening for him in those six months? Uh, well, a lot of it was deciding, okay, here's my daughter, here's my flesh and blood, here's someone I believe in, I respect, and uh, we differ in this area. So he needing to decide what he was going to do about that, and that's what faces so many Christians with um, gays or lesbians in, in their families. And again, that's what I talk about in the book. How uh, was that six-month period for you? Um, well, actually, it, it lasted longer than six months as far as there being opposition and pro- problems with yeah, that. Yeah, but that silence... Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this the silence, it was something that I, I anticipated. Um, I had already looked at what might be the outcome, and it was uh, I had worked my way to my father through my family to come out to everybody else in the family. <laughs> and so it really didn't surprise me, and it was something that we later, years later, could talk back, you know, talk about and look back on. So. Okay, we'll talk specifically about the scriptures, but mm-hmm. um, I, I would like to focus for a moment on gay conversion therapy specifically, because mm-hmm. yes. you do write about the history of the practice. Um, yes, I write about that and also sexual orientation as a whole, what we do know um, health-wise. In what do med- we know about the history of gay conversion therapy? Well, a lot of it's a pretty dark history to take a look at what has happened to gays and lesbians and in the name of all, uh, love or religion, actually, a lot of it, and um, where there's been aversion therapy that's used with drugs that have been induced or even shock therapy, but that's years ago. Thankfully, those those practices have been uh, have been um, discontinued. But there are still those that believe that conversion therapy works, and there's nothing out there that shows that that it's effective. Now, in your book, you do cite cases in which people felt like their sexual orientation changed mm-hmm. under this therapy. Yes. And during one of the hearings for the Colorado bill banning conversion therapy in minor. Uh, This man testified. My name is Jeff Johnston. I testify on behalf of thousands of men and women who have left homosexuality, including myself, and those who have walked out of gender confusion. I also represent my wife and my three sons. I love my wife. We've been married for 25 years. My marriage and sons would not exist if I had not walked away from homosexuality. Supportive, encouraging help from licensed counselors played an important part in my leaving homosexuality. But you make a key distinction in the book between doing this for young people, and that's that's what this ban applies to, and adults choosing this. Correct. On their own. Why do you think that's an important distinction? Correct, because again, having that choice to to go into that kind of therapy instead of having that imposed on you, and and to point out, I don't deny this man's. I haven't heard it before, but I don't deny his account of what happened to him. Uh, many will say that he may be bisexual, or many will may say that he changed his behavior, not his orientation. But it's not my place to decide how somebody else should or should not identify. How do you respond to Christians who say banning the practice infringes on their First Amendment rights? And, you know, this is a debate in in general right now in society, sort of religious freedoms Mm -hmm. versus 
uh, other freedoms and rights. Sure, sure. And actually, another, I know I keep referring back to my book, but I, I devote a chapter to religious freedom, and I handle things very fairly there um, to show if your religious freedom infringes on someone else's rights or denies them their dignity or their right, then it's something that we have to look at how, how to balance that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's not easy. No. Those easier nope. said than done. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but you also say in this book that you don't think these conversations are happening enough. I mean, I'll just quote you here. Dialogue is too often rare and getting more so. People have little contact with those who hold differing opinions. Right. right. And and it's so easy to go ahead and, and have that attitude of us versus them. We're right, you're wrong, and not to have those conversations, not to bridge across those those differences. And that's what my book is about. Yeah. Let's talk about a key uh, scripture. Um, I think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. maybe the most commonly cited when it comes to homosexuality. What do you find when you analyze that passage? Well, and I go into that in the book as well. Yes. Yeah. And so we know that that's in the book. Yes. So yes. what I'm what I'm asking you is <laughs> yes. to bring it here to the radio airwaves. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, we got it. Um, yes. What? Tell me about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, with Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the most well known story that that um, is referenced, and what they thought they look at it as something that the homosexuality was the reason that so- Sodom and Gomorrah was taken down. Um, and the the interpretation that I have, as many as well many others, is that. That it, there was an inhospitality, there was greed, there was arrogance there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and also the reference that Jesus makes in the New Testament, he refers to that as well. And homosexuality was not placed onto those scriptures as an interpretation, actually, until about 400 AD with St. Augustine. So you interpret the message of Sodom and Gomorrah as different. You interpret it differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it as a different lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. When you presented that to your father, what kind of discussion did that spark? Well, the same thing that he would say about some of the other scriptures is he looked at it as an abomination, even though he couldn't he couldn't directly see any evidence of that in my personal life, but it was something that he had a hard and fast belief on those scriptures and um, the thing that I point out to and did point out to him is that we obviously disagree just like we've disagreed in the past. People disagreed on the scriptures about slavery and change their mind. And my point is that we should familiarize ourselves with these scriptures and think for ourselves and make decisions accordingly. I mean, it's interesting. Before you present the analysis of the seven scriptures, you do talk about slavery mm-hmm. in the Bible. What is your tactic there? What are you trying to say? It's part of, part of my uh, way of persuading or having people look at the bigger picture and to see how scriptures were misused and misinterpreted to support slavery, to condone it for hundreds, thousands of years, and people change their mind on that interpretation. The same as um, when we look at interracial marriage and people change their mind on that. If we look at women's rights and the scriptures that were used to keep women in their place and uh, changing their mind on those interpretations of those scriptures as well. And so I lead that into the scriptures um, that people use against homosexuality. In the conversations with your father, did you change your mind about anything? Um, I changed my mind about compassion 
uh, and, and looking at my father from the standpoint of a more a human standpoint, that his love for me also translated across his belief system. It was something that when I when I look at it from from the past, um, he he truly cared and had a concern that I was going to hell. And so I was able to not judge him in his judgment. And I know that may sound, you know, kind of um, interesting, but it was something that I had a love and compassion for him, even in the belief system that he had. And so you think that, that both parties need to be bringing that kind of attitude to any discussion? Um, yes, absolutely. I will say, though, that gays and lesbians come to on the short end of the stick with demands that are being made on them um, to change or to deny who they are even when there's disagreement, but where, where if I am lesbian as I am and I disagree with conservative Christians, it doesn't affect or impact them negatively where the reverse does happen. Thanks for your perspective, Kim. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank Kim, you. Kim O'Reilly of Denver is the author of the new book, We Love You, But You're Going to Hell, which seeks to open up the conversation between LGBTQ people and some conservative Christians. <laughs> It's graduation season, and we'll be dipping into commencement speeches to share some highlights. Today, Jennifer Trujillo, who addressed students at Fort Lewis College in Durango, where she also teaches. She specializes in culturally diverse education. She greeted graduates in English, Spanish, and Navajo. Fort Lewis serves students from 170 American Indian tribes and Alaska Native villages. Good afternoon. Muy buenas tardes. As Tom said, I am a proud alumna of Fort Lewis College, but it was a long road to get here. I spent much of my childhood in Caracas, Venezuela, which you may have recently heard about on the news. When we moved permanently to the United States, a counselor called me down to the office and said, is it true that you speak Spanish at your house? I said, yes, and he said, well, you need to stop because it's going to be a detriment to your education. So I went home and I told my mother and she said, ese hombre no sabe nada. That man doesn't know what he's talking about. But she did, in fact, stop speaking Spanish to my younger brother and sister because he was a man in a position of authority and power. And so we experienced subtractive bilingualism where we had language loss within our own home. This is a common tale in America across a variety of ethnicities and languages and for a variety of reasons. I spent time between two languages translating within and for my family So indeed, words became a central part of my life. You know, colleagues, graduates, you're graduating in a world that can feel very polarized at the moment. The words that you advocate may be in direct contrast to those of another, but words have power. They can divide or they can unite, but they must be uttered. My advice to you today is that you use your words. Continue to grow. Read and talk and listen to the words of others. I wish to add one more comment about words, and it's something I learned working with many Native American students and their families. I learned a special word, hoshho. This is a term that refers to interconnectedness between beauty and harmony and goodness in all things, physical and spiritual, that results in health and well-being for all things and beings. Words are a part of bringing that into existence. They have the energy, the power to lift, to love, to heal, to help. With that, I'll give you the last word. I'll say, go, you say, Skyhawks. Go. Go. Go.
Jennifer Trujillo teaches at Fort Lewis College in Durango and runs True Learning, an educational consulting company. She spoke to graduates at Fort Lewis last weekend. Illegal Pete's, the Denver-based burrito chain, must constantly defend its name. Critics think it demeans immigrants. Most recently, the pushback has come from Delaware. My colleague Avery Lill has the story. Illegal Pete's is expanding. It has 11 locations in Colorado and Arizona, and in the next few years, founder Pete Turner wants to double that. But the company hit a snag trying to incorporate in Delaware. The Secretary of State there denied it in LLC, saying the name has a negative connotation. Turner insists the name has nothing to do with immigration. It's more of a counterculture reference to honor his hell-raising father. It's like questioning stupid rules, pushing boundaries. And it's in that spirit, he says, that the company is suing Delaware. I was like, well, all right, here we go. We're doing a First Amendment lawsuit. And yes, I am going to incorporate in Delaware strictly because of this. You know, I mean, that may sound, I don't know, aggressive or even bratty for that matter. But no, I'm just standing up for my right. A name change could be expensive, cumbersome. But that's not the issue, Turner says. It's that the name is so deeply personal. This is the name that... My dad, you know, who was terminally ill with cancer in 95 when we opened and died almost exactly two years to the day after I opened in August. It's what he knew me as, um, this business as. It's what the T-shirt and the hat he was cremated in. Like, it's how I've grown the business. The Office of Delaware's Secretary of State has yet to respond to the lawsuit. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News. Who will be Denver's mayor? Voters may choose the incumbent, Michael Hancock, or they may go a different direction, perhaps towards Penfield Tate, former state lawmaker. Between now and Election Day, May 7th, Colorado Matters is working with Denverite to profile the frontrunners, asking each of them the same set of questions. So today, why is Penfield Tate running? What does he see as Denver's biggest challenge? Well, the biggest issue is a need for new leadership. People want accessible, ethical, and transparent leadership because they feel we haven't had it. And when we get that new leadership to lead Denver's future, people want us to focus on a few things. One, developments got the city out of balance. And so we need to have a more neighborhood and people-centric approach to development rather than let developers drive that train. When we change that, we also need to focus on getting attainable and affordable housing throughout the city. You know, I I walk the city a lot and visit and knock on doors, and everybody's complaining about the development, but that it's too expensive to live here. I see families broken up because kids and grandkids can't afford to live close to parents and grandparents. Um, And the fabric of communities are being disrupted with the gentrification. So attainable housing, that also is key to dealing with a massive homelessness situation. That's the worst, I think, in Denver's history. So we've got to address that and lift people out of homelessness, help lift them out of homelessness. And then the roads are just a cluttered mess. Um, And everywhere I go, people complain about it. Um, I was walking to an observatory park and some folks who were jogging with their dogs said, you know, Penfield University is a speedway and Colorado Boulevard's a parking lot. <laughs> we're trapped in between them. So those are the things they want, but they want new leadership to bring it because it hasn't happened in eight years and they don't want someone just doing stuff. They want things done right. And that's what we're going to do. 
Now, Tate's view of the issues is not unlike other candidates in this race. So how does he set himself apart? It's not just doing things. You've got to do things right. We have grown, and the problem we have now is we've grown with no plan or guidance or direction. I mean, look around you. The city's talking about passing Denver right now. And I had, when I was walking, one person said, does that mean we've been doing Denver wrong for seven years? And my answer would be, yeah, probably. Um, But the the horse is out the barn. And now that people are talking about planning, that's why I have said, among other things, don't vote on this Denver right plan yet. And actually, you know, I've called for a moratorium on granting more project permits, except home improvement stuff. People ought to be allowed to do that. We got to get a handle on the direction we want to go. And we need to, to just take a pause for a minute and retool things so that we know what the objective is. We haven't had one. It's just been growth for growth's sake. What we'll do is we'll do development right. We'll do it with and for neighborhoods and not to them. So I, you know, it's just... There's no need to continue the path we've been on with this administration because that's driven all of the issues that people are complaining about. So my point is stop now. We know change is coming. And when my administration takes office, we're going to chart a new direction and we're going to move forward. Our thanks to Denverite's David Sachs for gathering those answers. David's on the city beat and he joins us once again to put what we are hearing from mayoral candidates into context. Hi, David. Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? Uh, I'm doing okay. So this could be confusing. Your publication is called Denverite, but that is also spelled differently the name of an important plan that has just passed in the city of Denver. Right. Emphasis on right. Denver right. Get it? Um, So the idea is this is a 20-year plan for growth, and um, it will dictate policies for the next 20 years. And Penfield Tate is skeptical. Yeah, he doesn't want to see what he would call a lame duck council pass this, but it was passed and it was passed pretty easily. Help us understand more of what we heard from Penfield Tate. One of the things that's interesting is he did call for a moratorium on new building permits, but he's not saying he would do that in his administration. He's calling on the current mayor to do that. So there's really no risk on the table as far as that commitment goes or that ask goes. He's a former state legislator, and he really thinks development is out of control. That's what he talks about a lot at these mayoral forums. He really wants to revamp the permitting process to give neighborhoods earlier say and more of it in the development process. I wonder if sometimes he and Lisa Calderon, who we talked about earlier this week, are indistinguishable. I wouldn't say they're indistinguishable. I think she has more of a social justice background than he does. But, um, they, you know, like a lot of the candidates, they do have uh, similar views on a lot of things. I think it was interesting in the nine news debate, the question was, who would you vote for? And Calderon if said... If you couldn't vote for yourself. If you could not vote for yourself. Um, Calderon said she would vote for Penfield Tate or Kalen Heffernan. Um, Penfield Tate said he would vote for Lisa Calderon. Jamie Gillis said anybody but Hancock. David, thank you. Thank you. David Sachs covers the city for Denverite, which is now part of Colorado Public Radio, and together we're profiling the leading candidates for Denver mayor. You can find a complete guide to the municipal election at denverite.com. Southern Colorado is a blend of cultures, partly because it belonged to Mexico until 1848. There's an unexpected way to see that blend today, and it's through the lens of health care. How folk remedies gave way to company doctors. It's actually the subject of a new exhibit at the Trinidad History Museum called Borderlands of Southern Colorado, Remedios, Medicine, and Health. 
And uh, Don uh, Duprince from History Colorado is with us. Nice to see you. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, so help us understand uh, this connection that you found really between the land, the people, and health care in southern Colorado. Yeah, there's, there is a connection between how people treat the land and how also people care for human bodies. Um, what we see that uh, pre-1848, when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago changes the border in southern Colorado, um, you know, healthcare was taken, was more community-centered, taken care of often by women, um, very family-centered, and more holistic, done in uh, communion with the land, with the spirit, as well as physical bodies. And then post-1848, um, you see surveyors come in and they divide the land in a, in a different way, and you start seeing the same thing happening with health care. It becomes more compartmentalized. Um, the authority over who can control health um, becomes centralized. And so there's a very interesting parallel in how we treat bodies and how we treat land. How we treat bodies and how we treat land. Uh, maybe say more about the shift... Uh, as it relates to industry in southern Colorado, because I think then of how big mining became and steel production, for instance. How does that change the dynamic? So um, we we look at coal mining. Coal mining is such a rich part of the Trinidad um, area history and, and still today. And one of the things that we find is that in 1910, for example, over 200 men and adolescent boys are killed in coal mine disasters. And often those were caused by um, neglect of the coal operators and how they uh, created safety measures in the mines. But at the same time, these companies wanted to control the health care of their workers and their workers' families. People could not, um, people were required, the workers and their families were required to see company doctors. Right. This is so fascinating to me. So it's not just like the company store where you'd spend your paycheck. It was the company doctor. Yeah. So, um, you know, people know the story of the Ludlow Massacre, the strike that happens before the Ludlow Massacre. One of the seven demands that coal miners and the union make is that people are allowed to visit their own doctor. They wanted that uh, freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is an issue of freedom. And and the other thing that scholars point out to us is that that demand points to the fact that women and families were a really important part of the strike. It wasn't just about the workers. It was about their wives as well. Okay, I want to talk about this word remedios, uh, Spanish for remedies. Yes. These are part of the exhibit. And these are really connected to that time in southern Colorado before the border changed. Tell us about these remedios of southern Colorado's borderlands. Yeah, so this is one of the aspects of the exhibit that we really learned from the community. Um, the community of Los Animas County came together and taught us um, what these remedios were. Right, you reached out on social media to collect stories from people in Trinidad. Yes, yes, and we heard um, all sorts of amazing things like um, red chili chili powder and honey for a sore throat, uh, juniper tea for a sore throat. Wait, I'm writing that down. (laughs) Wait, red? Red chili chili and honey, yeah, for a sore throat. What was the second one? Juniper tea for a sore throat, um, vinegar soaked in potatoes for chest congestion, um, all sorts of amazing things we learned from the community. And I think, you know, some of these were certainly practiced in the past, but, but some of them are still practiced today. 
How did you know to ask for them? Um, this is this is how we build our exhibits. We always do them in consultation with both scholars and with community. We believe that um, they all have this knowledge to bear, and and our job as History Colorado is to be a conduit and a storyteller for the, for all of that information. Well, we have a recording of a traditional Spanish saying that apparently came up as part of your outreach. Sana, sana, colita de rana. Si no sanas hoy, sanarás mañana. Sana, sana, colita de rana. Si no sanas hoy, sanarás mañana. Okay, so that roughly translates to heal, heal, little tale of the frog. If you don't heal today, you'll heal tomorrow. Apparently, a lot of people remember yes, this. Yes, yes. This came from so many people um, mentioned this as part of their familial health traditions. And, and nobody knows the origin of it, but everyone can cite the fact that it was um, comforting. You know, when your mom or your grandmother is taking care of you and singing to you, what could be better? Not exactly a lullaby, but something that you might sing to a sick kid. Yeah, to a sick kid or somebody even, you know, if you skinned your knee... Um, this is something that would be sung. It's so lovely. I've been listening to that actually off air over and over again. It has such a lovely cadence. Uh, I understand that you asked about a particular midwife who practiced in Trinidad. Um, will you tell me about her? Yeah, Mary Scavato um, was a midwife who practiced in the early um, half of the 1900s in Trinidad. And one of the things we did was we reached out to the community and asked them to share stories and photos of babies that Mary Scavato had delivered. And um, a number of people sent us photos, and we were able to put those into a quilt that is hanging in the exhibit. What did she mean to the community? Um, I think, you know, it's when birth is just an essential part of life. And so to have somebody who has that, takes that part in every family's story, I think is really powerful. And I think for us um, as historians, you know, we often hear about people who, you know, have built the buildings or created the industry. But what is more foundational than a woman who delivered all of the babies in a community? And at a time when home births were far more popular. Yeah, we found that um, at the beginning of the 1900s, uh, 95% of children were born at home. By 1950, only 5 to 10% of children in Colorado were born at home. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Donda Prince of History Colorado. She helped develop borderlands of Southern Colorado, Remedios, Medicine, and Health, uh, which opens uh, at the Trinidad History Museum tomorrow. Do you sense a return um, to the the folk traditions, or is it that they just really never left? I think in a lot of ways they've never left, but I think that um, there's been, um, you know, they haven't been public. People have um, maybe not been as proud of, of those things. They're, they're shared within the home, and one of the things that we really like to do is to say, these are really important to our culture. Um, this grandmother knowledge that some people like to disparage as old wives' tales, hmm. we think we um, should be elevated. 
A more modern healthcare story that Trinidad really became famous for was the work of Dr. Stanley Biber, a pioneer of gender reassignment surgery. How do you think that fits into this history, especially for Trinidad? Well, um, one of the things we kept asking is, is does the landscape, does this place, did this happen because this was in a borderland space? Hmm. Was Dr. Biber... Um, able to be this innovator because of where he was located. And and what you find when you study borderlands is that just by their very spatial nature, they tend to be away from the centers of power. And so you are able to be more creative and more innovative. Um, you have more space to do that. And so we really do think that... Um, Biber, you know, he was phenomenal in his own right, innovator and compassionate. But we think that being in this borderland space allowed him um, the space to do the things that he did. Thanks for being with us. Nice to see you, Don. Thank you. History Colorado's Chief Operating Officer, Don DePrince. She indeed developed Borderlands of Southern Colorado, Remedios Medicine and Health, which opens tomorrow at the Trinidad History Museum. All right. After a break what jazz great Duke Ellington brought to Denver 50 years ago. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Duke Ellington is one of the most revered musicians in American history. The jazz legend enjoyed immense popularity through the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and World War II. He recorded with Louis Armstrong, John Coltrane, and Ella Fitzgerald. Ellington wrote more than 3,000 songs, standards like It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing, Sophisticated Lady, and Take the A-Train. But Ellington's most important work may have come in the last decade of his life, a series of three sacred concerts inspired by his Christian faith. They combined gospel, blues, classical, and of course, jazz. Fifty years ago, he brought that music to Denver. You're listening to a recording from back then. This is something about believin' from Duke Ellington's second sacred concert, recorded at Denver's Montview Presbyterian Church in 1969. Montview celebrates the 50th anniversary of his visit with a performance Sunday. Adam Waite is Montview's music minister. Adam, nice to see you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. And Gene Sibley is a member of the church's choir who sang at the 1969 concert. Uh, thanks for being with us, Gene. Thank you. 1969, a huge year for Duke Ellington. He'd celebrated his 70th birthday, received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, Adam, this was well before your time, but how, how did Montview get Ellington to perform there that year? Well, the way I understand it, Ryan, was um, there was a 
a group within the church that was interested in inviting Ellington. At this point in uh, Park Hill's history, right, Montview is in the Park Hill neighborhood, um, there was an emphasis placed on integrating the neighborhood, right? And Montview saw itself as a, as a leader in that process. That's why they invited Martin Luther King to come preach in 65. And uh, some folks thought, uh, knowing of Duke Ellington and the work he had done on the first sacred concert, um, that it would be good to have Duke Ellington come to the church. So they literally sent out the 1969 equivalent of a cold call, (laughs) a letter to his agent, and said, if you're coming through this way, moving from the Midwest to the West Coast on a tour, we'll learn the music, our choir will learn the music, and we'd love to have you play with us. And Ellington took the church up on the offer. He did. And uh, the way I understand, of course, Gene was there, but the way I understand it was uh, two performances. They did a a four o'clock afternoon performance and an um, eight o'clock evening performance. The band arrived that morning. So the thing didn't get put together until about eight hours before the first performance. Oh, my goodness. Gene, that must have been fairly nerve wracking. No, it's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're a pro. Uh, you had recently started singing with Montview's choir when this concert uh, took place. Were you familiar with Ellington's music at that point? I was. I, I was raised in a musical home, so I did know about it, but I don't think I really had a sense of how important he was. I mean, jazz and big band music aren't necessarily typical church fare. No. Were you aware of his religious ties no no not at that time this was an introduction for you Mm -hmm. to that take us through that day so september 27th 1969 what are a few of your memories the bus arrived late morning we had a a morning rehearsal um and then the duke took a nap we (laughs) had an afternoon concert and he took another nap evening performance and then the the band members and several of the choir a lot of the choir members went downtown to the to a restaurant downtown and spent the rest of the night just jamming having a wonderful time This is Supreme Being from the 1968 studio recording of Duke Ellington's second sacred concert. Uh, You know, the the concert is really a melting pot of musical genres. Big band jazz, classical choral music, gospel spirituals, blues. What is challenging about performing it, Adam? Uh, That's a great question, Ryan. Um, I think to your point, your point, it it does encapsulate a lot of different musical styles. And that was Duke Ellington, right? Duke Ellington did not want to be known purely as a jazz musician, right? He saw himself as a musician, period, or as a composer, period, kind of without label. Of course, he did a lot of his work within that big band medium. No. He, he saw it as uh, being a broader palette than just um, jazz. So as a result, um, his sacred concert 
does shift from style to style. You can have a more straight-ahead swing piece, uh, and then the very next minute you're launching into this four-part chorale with these very, you know, almost atonal harmonies. Um, and I actually feel as though our choir, and I suspect the singers back in 1969, responded uh, really well to that. Uh, it almost makes the process more interesting, mm. right? the the, um, the chance to shift gears like that. Yeah, Gene, tell me about the experience of singing this, you know, versus maybe more traditional fare. A little bit difficult. It wasn't the kind of music we were used to singing. And, you know, you have to move a little bit, and Presbyterians aren't known for that. So <laughs> <laughs> we have our issues with that. But it was very exciting to be a part of of something so different and and just the excitement the the end of the day our hands were red and stinging from clapping which is also not something we're used to it was a very exciting thing I had a great viewpoint of I was looking right down on uh, his piano playing and watching his hands moving along and how relaxed he was and it was just a part of him mm. Did you have any one-on-one contact with Duke Ellington? Like, were I did you able not. to get his I did ear not at all? personally. Uh, no. he, we were in the sitting up. He was down, and he would wander back beyond us. Okay, here's another song from Duke Ellington's second sacred concert. You can hear how different this is from what we've heard before. Praise God and dance. I see you moving ever so slightly, Jean. Ever so slightly. This is where everybody, the the aisles filled with people. People began to dance, actually danced out in the aisles. In the congregation. In the congregation. Adam Ellington called his sacred concerts his most important work. Mm. Why do you think that is? Uh, That's another good question. you know, it's 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 kind of an interesting uh, opinion that he felt of the work, considering that he was reluctant to write the the first one to begin with. Oh, he was kind of dragged into the process by the folks at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, and uh, but I think the response that he received from that first sacred concert uh, really showed him that he was onto something special and unique, and was going to that thing that he was always looking for in his career, kind of breaking down barriers and and reaching folks. Um, and of course, after he wrote that first um, sacred concert, his longtime writing partner, Billy Strayhorn, passed away. And as we all know, when we go through those times of loss, you know, it kind of makes us reexamine our spirituality and our sense of being. And I'm sure Ellington went through a similar thing. Um, so, um, yeah, I feel as though that that's probably why he felt this work was so important. You are wearing a t-shirt. It says, some people think Duke Ellington is a member of the royal family. 
How much do you talk about that concert fifty years ago? Not a lot, except times like this. Yeah,、um, it sort of fades, and then somebody brings it up, and I say, "Oh yeah, I was there."、Um, You're so humble. He well, <laughs> she is. She is. <laughs> yep. You know, he considered himself a messenger, not necessarily proselytizing to get new mem-、mm. new people, but he felt himself to be a messenger to those who already had religion, who had God in their lives. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Gene Sibley and Adam Waite, musicians at Denver's Montview Presbyterian Church. They'll perform Duke Ellington's second sacred concert Sunday, fifty years after Ellington was there. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.